Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to part two of uh, the uh, state of the art. And I made the point that, uh, which I've made before, is that many clinical applications require a volumetric approach, and there's no doubt there are many things that we are seeing. We're also seeing a lot of CAD development, but a lot of computer-assisted imaging in general. So whether it's calculating precise volumes of a lung nodule, so that you're able to see it in 3D, but more importantly, get accurate measurements, whether it's the rested criteria or the WHO area or the mean, and then be able to look at it sequentially over time and have the computer calculate whether or not there is a change in volume, uh, looking at doubling time and the like. Same thing we see in terms of a volumetric approach to virtual colonoscopy. A number of articles have spoken whether you should do 2D or 3D reading, though most people do a combination of 2D and 3D reading. Uh, that's probably the most efficient in terms of lesion detection, though um, people have different experiences. The key thing, of course, is to be really good at doing it one way uh, and use that and maybe supplement it with the second technique. And there are a number of articles. Um, here's an article by Coppell talking about the, uh, the role of uh, virtual colonoscopy uh, in the situation of incomplete colonoscopy that the per patient and per lesion positive predictive values are over 90% uh, for larger lesions. And again, the key thing with virtual colonoscopy is improving your accuracy, uh, particularly for lesions in the one centimeter or so range. This article by Kim talking about 2D versus 3D evaluation. Uh, again, looking at some of the accuracies, comparing the two techniques. Uh, and their conclusion was primary 3D interpretation with virtual dissection revealed comparable per polyp and per patient accuracies, uh, but uh, involved a shorter interpretation time. So that indeed can be important. Or Pickard, uh, virtual colonoscopy with a 3D approach is an accurate screening method uh, for picking up relevant lesions. So again, lots of different articles. And uh, that Pickard article, which is the classic one spoken about, you know, very, very high sensitivity and specificity. Again, the key thing is learn how to do it well, whether you do a 2D or 3D approach, I think you can do it very nicely. We also show that using that same software, uh, virtual colonoscopy can be used in the airways, can be used in the stomach, stomach is distended, air works very nicely, really good look at the fold pattern, or this example, GI bleeding, mass in the stomach, you can see that enhancing lesion about two centimeters in size, axially and coronally, and uh, you can see it very nicely there. And uh, you can see as we go from the coronal, and then we do an endoluminal view, which really gives us a really nice advantage to look at the polypoid lesion, just like you're a uh, endoscopist looking in. So again, how well we see things, the type of details, the type of information we get, is obviously dependent on the tools we use. Now, again, it takes time to do some of these studies in the post-processing end. It doesn't take any more time for the clinicians to, to do it, but it definitely takes more time uh, uh, from, from the uh, radiologist's perspective but it's often very worthwhile. So for example, in colon cancer, there's been a good article, a number of good articles making the point that uh, you get better accuracy when you use this technique. So indeed, that works very nicely. Uh, you get better results uh, for early detection of cancer, uh, better staging, higher sensitivity. And the same thing we found in bronco with virtual bronchoscopy. Certain lesions are easier to pick up than with axial imaging and you may miss them. I like to show this example of a small polyp and a tracheal papillomatosis and a larger one of the bifurcation, but you recognize that that lesion in the right airway, in the left side rather, of the mainstem 
of the trachea is very difficult to see and it was missed no great surprise and even on a coronal display you don't see it you see the one in the polypoid one at the bifurcation but when you look through the images and then you go to the 3d map you recognize that we do see that lesion on the left trach left uh, wall of the trachea it's subtle but it's there but if you really want to see to do an endoluminal view and look how obvious the lesion is so i think a point being made here is the lesion is on the CT scan, it's just a matter of you finding it on the CT scan. And for that, it may take advanced imaging and, and more post-processing. Another example, um, look at this patient, uh, young patient, persistent infiltrate. Well, this ends up being a sequestration. You can see it nicely when you look endoluminally at the narrowed bronchus. Very, very classic appearance, very good visualization. So again, uh, our accuracy will be dependent on the tools we use, and these tools are being more available. Well, look at this case, very unusual thing, tracheopathia osteochondroplastica. I barely can pronounce it. But look at the trachea. You see the membranous posterior wall is okay, but the, from let's say, um, oh, uh, 7 o'clock to uh, 5 o'clock, you can see those irregularities with these little bit of calcifications. And I'll show it to you from the sagittal view. You see the posterior wall of the trachea is fine. And again, another view. And when you put that intraluminally, look how you see those multiple ridges. It's really a spectacular visualization showing you those multiple ridges. It's an unusual condition. It's a progressive but benign extraluminal projection of cartilaginous and bony nodules arising in the semicostal of the trachea. Involved may extend to the lower segmental bronchi. It should be considered in cases where cough, dysmia, infection, hoarseness, or hemoptysis remain after appropriate treatment of, of other lying uh, or other presumptive causes. Great case because it's hard to see on chest x-ray, very, very classic on CT, surely very classic on 3D CT imaging. Now what else? I've given lectures recently about pancreatic cancer, making the point that our capabilities are changing. Articles like by Olive, I've shown this before, very, very high sensitivity and specificity, very good predictive value who is or is not resectable. Again, with pancreatic cancer, we always recognize if we're going to err, we're going to err on the side of giving the patient a chance at surgery. Um, but you, when you look at all the articles, Zamboni is another article, you look at some of the numbers and the conclusion, MDCTA, an effective preoperative tool that reduces the number of aborted pancreatic resections. There's no evidence from this retrospective study, however, that it varied with generation of scanner. Now, that I would argue about. We all know the better the scanner up to a point, the better you're going to do. It's hard to imagine that four slice 16 and 64 all had the same results unless you had very large tumors. So uh, one of the things we find, and surely with uh, neuroendocrine tumors, the faster the scanner, the better the arterial phase, your accuracy increases, and now into the 90 plus percent. We also recognize the things we look at in pancreatic cancer from tumor detection based on size to enhancement changes, think endocrine, think adenocea being hypodense, looking at duct transition, whether the duct's dilated, and if it is, where does it change, and why is there a change in caliber? There must be a cause, stricture, mass, the like, stone, and then mass effect on other structures. We make the point that we're picking up masses earlier now. In this case, you can see a dilated duct, and only when you look very carefully do you see a very subtle mass in the two centimeter range. Uh, small masses are not always resectable. Tumors spread early at times. 
but surely large masses are typically unresectable. So the earlier you pick up a mass, the better your chance of the patient being resectable. And it's masses like in this case, dilated duct, it's a subtle tumor, very easy to miss. It's not a large mass, but these are the cases that will have the curative chance. And you can see in this case, I'm not showing you axial images, I'm showing you volume rendering with tissue mapping, very nicely bringing the entire pancreas into projection, very nicely allowing us to see the subtle tumor based on the transition of the patient's pancreatic duct. Same thing true in common duct, dilated common duct, you follow it down, transition, there's a mass in the head of the pancreas, hypodense mass, early involvement of duodenum, very classic example of pancreatic adenocarcinoma. And you can see as you play with the volume renderings, as you adjust, showing the dilated duct, showing the mass, very easy to do. Same thing in this example. Again, what are you seeing? Atrophy, distal gland, dilated duct, boom, transition, boom, texture change. Classic for tumor, patient was resectable. Very, very nice visualization. And here it is two more times. Now, we mentioned about these texture maps. Again, can you see all the lesions with axial imaging? I think you can see a lot of them. But sometimes you end up with equivocal reports. Sometimes the reports are negative. But it's these other planes that really bring these small tumors into perspective. With large tumors, it's not going to be that same issue, obviously. Now, our capabilities have really impacted on how pancreatic cancer is managed. Our detection abilities, our accuracy, as well as new surgical technique. So in this consensus statement, we talk about borderline resectable, not just resectable and unresectable, but borderline resectable. In the past, vascular involvement made you unresectable. Now, borderline resectable, encasement of a short segment of hepatic artery without celiac involvement, tumor abutment of the SMA, but under 180 degrees, and short segment occlusion of the SMV, portal vein, or their confluence. And so what we're seeing is that more patients surgeons will operate on and they're having good results. And here's a good article in the, in the Annals of Surgical Oncology with advances in surgical technique and imaging technique. A subgroup of pancreatic tumors is emerging that blurs the distinction between resectable and locally advanced disease, these borderline resectable tumors. Now in many cases what they'll do first in terms of treatment is do chemoradiation using gemcitabine-based chemotherapy followed by chemoradiation and then that improves the chance of margin negative resection. So borderline tumors treat first, wait six to eight weeks, and then do surgery. And again, we're seeing this a lot because of the multidisciplinary approach to pancreatic cancer. We've seen that at Hopkins, results, um, significant change at imaging. 18.7% of patients had a change in their status of their clinical stage based on a reinterpretation of the imaging at Hopkins. And then based on other things, including review of pathology, almost a quarter of patients had a change in their recommended management. So again, there's lots of uh, learning that can be done. There's lots of opportunity, but I think we're giving a lot of patients a new opportunity. Now, we also recognize not all masses are hypodense. There are cystic lesions. This was a cystadenoma. We speak about IPMNs commonly on the three centimeters. Uh, CT's very good at looking at lesions that would make you suggest malignancies in terms of cystic lesions, septations, nodularity, and the like. We're also good at picking up islet cell tumors. Here's a 1.5 centimeter islet cell tumor, nicely seen. 
they're typically hypervascular. In the past, they were small, easily missed. Now we're at the 90% range for pickup. And just to make the point, it's also metastatic disease. And here's a patient with a metastatic uh, renal cell carcinoma to the pancreas. They give very similar to neuroendocrine type appearances with hypervascular lesions. So my rule is vascular lesion pancreas is always neuroendocrine unless I notice, as in this case, that the patient's missing one of the kidneys. Then it's metastatic renal cell carcinoma. And actually the first case I read this morning was an example of this with a three centimeter hypervascular tumor within the uh, pancreas. Just a very nice example. Islet cell tumors, we look at extent. Surgeons are more aggressive. Here you see lots of collaterals around the uh, pancreas. Big tumor, these tumors are often larger. You can see the extensive collaterals due to splenic vein occlusion. And we can show it very nicely in the uh, volume rendering and the maximum intensity projection techniques. Liver imaging is something we also have spoken about and making the point that with volumes we look at the lesion detection but also characterization. So here's a nice example of a simple cyst, water density, well-defined, sharp margins and when you look at the CTA the vessels are displaced, there's no neovascularity. We look at the puddling aspects of this lesion, peripheral enhancement, filling in from peripheral to central, very classic for hemangiomas, leave alone lesions, no problem. Uh, that puddling begins early. Not all lesions will fill in entirely, but there is definite puddling to be seen. We look at other lesions, Fulconage hyperplasia, very classic early on, hypervascular, homogeneous, central scar, feeding vessels. Vessels are often large, but there's no neovascularity. Great example here, hypervascular, but only as vascular as the IVC, not as vascular as the aorta. Multiple lesions in this case with a central scar. And here very nicely is showing feeding vessel. Another example, central scar, homogeneous en enhancement like the patient's uh, IVC. And if you looked at it over time, here's a classic appearance. Again, FNH will become isodense. Very easy to miss them, even a five centimeter mass on late phase imaging. Good news, FNH are benign lesions. Same thing with hepatoma. Best phase, non-contrast, uh, is used sometimes uh, because you can differentiate at times regenerating nodules from hepatoma. We routinely do not do non-contrast CT. The best phase is arterial phase. 30% of hepatomas or more will be missed if you don't do arterial phase imaging. Good example, cirrhosis, tips catheter, lesion, right lobe of liver. What is that lesion? Could it be hemangioma, peripheral lesions? Well, we often say hemangiomas don't occur in cirrhotic livers. And if you look more closely at this lesion with CT angiography, look at that feeding vessel going into the lesion. There's neovascularity. That's a classic hepatoma. So it's the 3D map that really made the diagnosis. Or this example, hypervascular lesion, prominent feeding vessels, I'll show it to you in a few different perspectives. This was also a simple hepatoma in a cirrhotic liver. Or this case, glycogen storage disease, known to be hepatic adenoma, and not really, had, not really much change over time, but you look at the lesion, kind of worrisome a little bit on the axials, but you say it hasn't changed, but look what happens when I put it into 3D. Look at the neovascularity in the lesion. So you really get a very good look at that lesion a really good understanding of precisely what is or what is not going on. Now, there are other areas we can look at, and maybe what we'll do is I'll stop at this point, 
And we'll finish up next time. We'll take a good look at some of the applications. And you can see from this image, I'll use it as a teaser, looking at the patient's bowel, the roles of volume rendering and MIP in this whole visualization technique, the ability to see the very small vessels, the ability to look at enhancement in this patient with Crohn's disease, the ability to look at many different disease processes. And so why don't I leave you with this, think about it, and I'll see you next time. Thanks a lot.